this is the way I'm going to go about. First, I'll outline the threat, then the different perspectives on the Maoist movement, then go down to why do we feel the threat so acutely now, and then round up with the counter-insurgency counter lessons that can be sourced out from the Indian experience. Okay. In any narrative of violence, what's most important is whose version carries more conviction. Once we decide who are the heroes and who are the villains of the story, it's very easy to accept one side's violence as justified and another side's violence as an atrocity. But in India, how do we get the story right? Because it's a land of multiple truths. Now on the surface, the country has everything going for it, a very strong and stable government and economy. But in reality, it faces a severe threat from the Maoists, who are slowly and slowly eating into its territory and carving out a state of their own from within the country. Now, while the average shelf life of a Karela organization in the region is around 15 years, the Maoists have been holding on for more than 40 years. So the threat has not crept on us. But there are two major differences between the old Maoists and the current crop. The first is that while the uh, while the old Maoists were basically, you had prominent leaders, it was a thinly spread rebellion, so it was very easy for the government to control it. But now they have a pan-India presence, cutting across cultural, religious, linguistic, and regional differences. It is truly an example of class mobilization. Defying conventional wisdom here, we find that Ideology has trumped identity as a factor in class, in group formation and cohesion. The second major difference is that while the old Maoists steered clear of religion, the current Maoists actively court religious extre extremists. They have openly supported the Lashkare Toeba and they have set up operational ties with the, the Students Islamic Movement of India, the Harkatul Jihadi Islam. So here what we find is that the atheists have no compunction in co-opting religious extremists as long as they are working on the right side of history, and that's against the Indian state. What's disturbing is that the Maoists drawing strategic inspiration from Mao have been playing by the book, and the government knows the way they operate their aims, but they have not been able to contain them. What's disconcerting is that despite the increasing brutality of their attacks, the Maoists have been able to generate extreme lot of support and sympathy from a sizable section of the urban and rural population. Before I come to the reason for this, just a brief overview of the current situation. First, I'll give their aim. They have a transnational aim. They want to set up a compact liberated zone stretching from Nepal, cutting across India, Bangladesh, till Sri Lanka. And they're systematically going about this. They're actually captured continuous land area. In you, have, you see two different figures, 195 districts according to the independent estimates, whereas this comes to 223 districts according to the government. The seven most affected uh, states, they are called the Red Corridor states. And this comprises of around 40% of our geographical area and 20% of our population. And here, the Maoists have complete control. They take taxes from the government. It's not, and they take taxes from the people and not from the government. So then what they have done is, they decide that this is going to be where we are going to have our new democratic revolution. And from here, we will launch our world proletariat revolution. For this, they spearheaded the formation of the coordination committee of the South Asian Maoists uh, by, in 2001. And they have set up operational ties with their counterparts in Peru, in Philippines, and Turkey. Now, what has been the recent dangerous development has been the induction into their rank and file, the escaped members of the Tamil Tigers. And this has boosted their military capabilities. They have also trained in the jungles of Myanmar and have been found with weapons-grade ammunition of China. Coming to, so what we see that they have a huge presence in this, so they have grown into a more potent and durable force, and they are, they are no longer confined to jungles as they were previously. Now they have spread to villages and cities. 
we have found communist, uh, the Marxist, uh, Maoist presence in cities like Calcutta, which is called the cultural capital of India, and Bombay, which is the commercial capital. And they plan to attack industrial belts surrounding these areas. They are also hurting us economically because these regions, though they have the poorest people, the tribals, they are very rich in terms of minerals and resources. 40% of our precious minerals are concentrated in one small state called Jharkhand in middle. That you can see there pointed here. Then Orissa, it has around USD 4 trillion worth of unexplored bauxite. They have been able to deter all mining companies who want to come here and all. And they have been controlling the arteries of trade in this area, especially National Highway 43, which runs through it, which is one of the busiest trade and transit routes. Now they are slowly and slowly spreading to the coastal belt and eyeing the minor and major ports in the, in the Bay of Bengal, this the ocean. Coming to their impact, there has been a five-fold increase in Maoist violence in the past two years. More than 3,000 civilians have been killed and more than 300 security forces have been attacked here. They have, they have uh, attacked physical infrastructure like schools, uh, electrical grids, telecom towers, and this has amounted to around USD 1.6 billion in losses in just one year. So coming to who are these Maoists or the neo-Naxals as they are called? The, up, the, the, leaders are from the leaders are from the upper castes. They're extremely educated, very eloquent, and very media savvy. The lower level and the middle level leaders are usually the peasants, the sharecroppers. The, uh, the, and, and what is significant is that you see here that 60% of the Maoist commanders are women, and 40% of the cadres are also women. So this shows that when women take to arms, how the society has failed their women population. Now, the Maoists have no qualms in inducting the children. You see, they, in Chhattisgarh, children as young as 12 have been given arms and recruited. In, recruited. So we know that it's a huge threat. But what's ironical is that perception regarding the Maoists is divided. Now, why is that? Just like there is no monopoly over violence in India, there is no monopoly over truth. So on the Maoist, on the Maoist movement, what we find is that parallel plot lines are being played to the public. The first story calls it a people's struggle. It romanticizes the movement. Here, Indian democracy is dismissed in the, old, in the words of old school Marxists as false consciousness, where the poor and tribal are exploited, their lands forcibly taken away by corrupt government, by greedy, big business, and feudal landlords. And the only hope of the tribals to fend off these profit hounds is the, are the selfless comrades of the revolutionary vanguards, who will lead them in a heroic struggle. Yet the failure of the government to implement the agricultural land reforms and ensure social justice in these, uh, in these particular areas has transformed the Green Revolution into a Red Revolution. And the Maoists say that all the left-leaning and therefore right-thinking individuals should support the comrades in their revolutionary aim and therefore turn a blind eye to their occasional excesses like summary executions and violence. So here what we find is that the ethics of Naxalite violence comes into play when the movement arising from the socio-economic uh, underdevelopment of the tribals is taken as an unchallenged truism. So while violence is generally distasteful, Maoists are somewhat different. The second story. The second story of the Naxalite movement is of the government. This story tells that the gov it is of a besieged government where they are besieged from whom? Selfless, uh, self-serving uh, Maoists who are masquerading as an emancipation movement. Here the government says, see, we want to develop these areas, but we cannot enter these areas because the Maoists cut off all transport and communication lines. The villagers uh, antagonize the big business. So what do we do? 
And if we do, if we want to come by force, then the civil society rises up in protest and tells that you cannot do it, we are a democracy and all. So here what they portray the Maoists as that apart from revolution, they have a profitable side business of, uh, of having a criminal network like small arms trafficking, of drugs, drug uh, trafficking, and of playing henchmen to local politicians, where they intimidate the local power elite's rivals in return of money and political, the promise of uh, free run when that party comes to power. Then we come to the third story, which is that of the people. And this is the most important part. No one likes their lives to be marred by violence. But to say that tribals wholeheartedly support the Maoists is to discount the fact that they are not a monolithic group. There are a lot of divergences amongst the tribals. So while some support the Maoists, some don't. And here the Maoists rule by fear or favor. We also hear about the grievances of the locals who say that the government is very apathetic or very exploitative. We have heard about forest officials coming and raping their women, deliberately taking away their lands, and or, or raising uh, vigilantes and civilian groups to repress the locals. In a recent uh, survey that I did in the Red Corridor, you see 43% support the Maoists because they say that we have no choice. The government is not here, so whom will we turn to for basic amenities? The next we find that 39 people have supported them fully. 36 wanted the government without special economic zones. I'll be coming to the special economic zones later. 21% said that unconditional support to government, regardless of whether you bring special economic zones or not. 11 tribals wanted autonomy. They said that we don't want the government, we don't want the Maoists, we just want to be left alone. Now, these are the three main stories. Why the main storyline is hijacked by the government and the Maoists, there's a fourth story, or rather a non-story, which is never told. And this, I think, is the most important. And that's of the hundreds of civil society organizations that have been working for so many years peacefully to ensure tribals their right to life with dignity. They have helped pass the forest protections right, ensuring the tribals some safeguards, the tribal protection right, a host of development measures have been undertaken because of their efforts. The leaders, like the Chhattisgarh Mukti Morcha leader, has been targeted both by the Maoists and by big business who have ordered their assassinations and all. But that has never deterred them. They've continued to work hard. So what we find here is that the real issue is not about which side is right, but about ensuring a quality of governance. It's about supplanting the politics of violence with peaceful efforts for entitlement. Now, in 2009 and 2010, we find that there's been an upsurge in violence. And this can be directly linked to one particular policy called the land acquisitions policy or the special economic zones. When we talk about India, we're talking about a transitional economy that's facing a lot of pressures and pulls. It's about a country trying to outgrow its socialist past and become more capitalist than the capitalists. It's about a country that is facing the currents of globalization that is creating disturbances within that society. What we find here is that government wants to fast track development in these particular areas. So they come to these tribal lands, which is extremely rich in resources, as I've previously told. And they come and tell them that we will sell <coughs> these lands at dirt cheap prices to big business. These businesses will come and set up a special economic zones where they will give a, they will rehabilitate the tribals and give them a compensation package. It sounds very nice on paper. But the reality is that tribals have an emotional attachment to their land. And they don't just perceive a threat to their economy or their livelihood, but to a whole way of life. What, what the Maoists do is they come here, feed that fear of the tribals, and shore up their support base. They say that we will ensure your quality of life. You will get all the resources. We are here for you. The government is not. 
The second reason why there has been this growth in violence has been that after years of factionalism and turf wars between the 40 Maoist groups in India, there has been a unification. As we know in Marxism and Maoist, both have this principle of self-criticism. And there's been this constant effort to bridge differences and come out in a common line, take a common line on what tactics to use and whether we should prioritize mobilization of masses over annihilation of classes. So this was represented by the 2004 unification of the two most powerful groups, the People's War Group and the Maoist Communist Center. And this added more resources, more strength, more capability to the Maoists. Now they have 20,000 armed, armed members and 50,000 reserves. Now this is more than the height of Kashmiri militancy where there were 3,000 insurgents. Again we find a change in strategy from guerrilla tactics to mobile warfare. Now, and this is actually demonstrated by the change in the, uh, in the name of their army from People's Liberation Guerrilla Army to People's Liberation Army. Previously, they, were, they had perfected the hit-and-run tactics. And now, it's about overwhelming the, with, uh, the enemy with a huge force. Recently, we had a Dante Ward mass massacre where 75 top uh, CRPF, that is the reserve force, just built just to deal with these threats. They were completely decimated by the Maoists. And, all, and most of them are actually women who killed all these people. Then they go on a multi-pronged offensive. And what's this? The first thing is that they have a huge middle class of very good, eloquent, telegenic uh, PR men. And they go around and in, go to all these intellectual gatherings, especially in Calcutta, Bombay, Pune, Delhi, these areas. And they get the support of urban intellectuals. Then we, then you find that they attack local development agencies. They don't allow them to enter. I was actually there in Chhattisgarh where I found one of 700 schools had been destroyed by the Maoists because they were government-built schools. And then the Maoist soldier would come with a shovel and say, we'll build schools for you. This is how they can discredit the government. And another thing is that a government gives also a lot of room for them to discredit them and all. So we also find the second thing that they do is the visible sign of the state is the police station. The local police stations are very important in these areas. And they bomb these police stations or destroy their, or kill them and loot their arms and weaponry. And then they upgrade their attack level by attacking the paramilitary forces. So here the people know that they don't trust the government. Maoists look stronger and they seem to listen to them. So. It's like a Hobson's choice for the people. Whom do we support? This or that? So usually they end up supporting the Maoists. It pays them to support the Maoists in those areas. And the next reason why there has been a severity of violence has been they are investing more and more in sophisticated weapons. Previously, what we used to find in 70s or 80s, they would use sickles or, or just small uh, guns or something like that to kill the landlords or hang them and put them in fields and all. And that had a lot of fear. That would bring, up, that would create a lot of fear and all this, and because you see somebody hanging from the field and all that would definitely scare you. But here we find a qualitatively difference in their Maoist tactics because they have a separate research and development wing, and they are better armed than the local police. The last reason why there has been an increase in Maoist violence has been the raising of Jan militia or the people's militia. The government did a very, actually it, is a, it proved counterproductive to raise irregular forces of vigilantes or proxies. Like in lower caste group areas, they raised the Salwa Judum. And when it was the upper caste, it was the Ranveer Sena. That is the caste of the, land, the landlords. They raised the Ranvi Sena and Salwa Jodum was basically from the lower areas. The local people perceived these vigilantes as the greater evil because they would go about abusing their power and authority because they were the ones who had the extended eyes and ears and the arms of the government. And they completely abused their power and did the same things that the 
forest officials did. Basically, they learned from the state in targeting the tribal women, most of whom filled up the Maoist ranks later on. So what about countering the Maoists? Now, different states in India, since law and order is a state subject in India, different states had different policies to deal with Maoists. And most of this was determined by vote bank politics. Did it pay electoral dividends to go on an all-out offensive against the Maoists or not? But one state that proved successful in uprooting the Maoists from 23 of its 26 districts and reducing the ranks from 1,000 to 400 was Andhra Pradesh. And this was because of the Greyhounds. They developed a specialized police force. Since you're dealing with your own people, military is not an option. And if you do bring in the military, there's going to be a lot of hue and cry. So they decided, let's focus and build, custom build a specialized police force of, called the Greyhounds. And just like Maoists were, like in total contrast to the Maoists, who are depending on more people and overwhelming with numerical strengths, here it was about compressing that, having a small and compact units of 15 to 25 specially trained men in deep forest pursuit and combat. Now, the Greyhounds would prowl the backcountry, supported by a network of paid informers. Here, the stress was on, just like it was on in the Punjab during the Khalistani movement, the stress was on boosting local intelligence. It was so that you can pinpoint the Maoists from the villagers, because you don't know who, because you're dealing with your own people, and you don't, how can you distinguish between them? So this pinpointing of this would reduce the harassment of locals and preventing alienating them. It was felt that it was more cost effective to build up sensitive police stations than raise paramilitary forces. Because the logic was that if you raise a new paramilitary force, so if it's a 1,000 numbers if you take, just a guesstimate, then 350 would actually go for the operations. The rest would be monitoring it, administrative and support staff. But in these police stations, if you have 100 people, then four to five will be in the police stations, whereas the rest would fan out the area. The next one was of boosting their technical abilities and local intel like mine detection. Now, 40% of Maoist attacks has been basically by putting mines and all. And the, again, as I mentioned, the Dantewad massacre, it was on trigger touch mines that completely destroyed the CRPF force. So here it was about to increase the mobility of the police, the technical abilities to completely restructure them, both physically and psychologically, so that they know that you know this is the danger and we are better armed than the Maoists. It was just not about arms, but also about how we approach the locals, that we just can't go there with force and all. So there were two major strategies that could be found from the Greyhounds. It was in areas that were completely under the Maoist control. The strategy was establishing operational dominance, so using kinetic force. But in areas adjacent to Maoist areas, or where they had some marginal influence, it was about fast-tracking the development process, bringing a lot of development and all, and then bringing, highlighting the contrast. Now, many people have said that, yeah, it doesn't work. Like, you know, you bring in this thing and all, as if the Maoists will not go to those adjacent areas. But surprisingly, it did work. You know. So here, recently, what has happened is that the, op the government started something called Operation Green Hunt. It was a central and state government offensive to target the Maoists. But Operation Green Hunt was based on trying to bring the best of enemy-centric and population-based uh, approaches. So they would go and go and repress the Maoists. At the same time, they would give development packages of 1.6 billion to the states participating in this. But the problem with this is that in South Asia, one thing that has never worked is repression and top-down development. Like in India, we find what kind of development works is bottom-up development, mostly self-help groups, micro and small enterprises, focusing on these areas. 
So there has been a rethink going on. It's and it's the the government is deciding has just decided actually that we will we'll reduce the force aspect of Operation Green Hunt, and instead instead we will start winning back the trust of the people because that's the most important thing. It's more about because the Maoists have told that we want to destroy the democracy. We want to destroy your system and have a new democracy in its place. So the gov it's now the whole initiative is to give them, give the voice, give a voice to the voiceless, to empower the disempowered and give them a stake in the very system that the Maoists want to destroy. So this is up till now what's been going on. And it's still a tough situation, but I think that the government India is not that weak a country that will disintegrate or something, but it will fight back. So. Why is uh, violence and deaths increasing? I mean, if you have these models of counterinsurgency in those areas, why aren't they working? Yeah, because in India, you can't just have a kind of a sweeping generalization that it works. I, what I said is it worked in Andhra Pradesh in certain areas, in 23 of the 26 districts of Andhra Pradesh. It's not working in Chhattisgarh. The three major Maoist-affected states are Chhattisgarh, Jharkhand, and now West Bengal. The reason it's not working is that in these areas, the, the government is not is a very weak government. government. It's a government that is more interested in playing power politics than in fighting the Maoists or winning back the support of the tribals. So it's not working there. The violence has increased in these areas. The deaths have increased in these areas. It's not increased in Andhra Pradesh. But in Andhra Pradesh, what is happening is that there is a Telangana movement going on now, which is to separate, they want a separate state of their own. And Maoists always, they know which area to target. Which way, which place to go? So now they are slowly and slowly moving towards Telangana areas and all, and getting the disaffected into their own camps. When you say more, when you talk about that, they actually control the area. Would you explain that more? Mao is controlling are, area. Where, <laughs> okay. They, they are the government. They do yeah, yeah, yes. In the areas. Well, how big is the area? There's about the population is almost the same as the United States. Yeah, yes, like the area that they control, like uh, let me go back to it. And okay, the problem is that we get two different figures, as I have already said. 223 districts shows the government figures. 195 is, comes from a collection of academics and journalists who work for South Asia Terrorism Portal. The Maoists actually control certain parts of the seven states, Jharkhand, Chhattisgarh, Orissa, West Bengal, Bihar, Andhra Pradesh, and part a bit of Madhya Pradesh also. Now, these are, as I told you, these are called the Red Corridor states. Now, here, as I told, they, they, it's the people pay the Maoist taxes. They don't pay government taxes. You just find a kind of a showcase uh, like a showpiece uh, government, like the police station, they don't work. Nobody's there. And if they work, the Maoists will kill them and all. Here, the schools are built by the Maoists. The deaths, marriage, uh, registration, the birth registration, which is extremely important just to know your individuality. It means what is your identity. So what are you going to sell property or something? No, no, you don't have it. It's a communist state, so it's a socialist state. So the property is owned by everyone here. So here, land becomes a land for everyone. So though they want to start a new democratic revolution here. That's what it was before. That was the Maoists. What it was before is that there was no. They were not cogent. There was. They, it was not. They were not clear about what they wanted because, in Andhra Pradesh, Maoists had a different vision. The Bengal Maoists had a different vision. Sitaramaya or uh, Kanu Sanyal, Charu Majumdar, who were the leaders there. And they were pretty visible leaders. And they, were, they had very set ideas about what they wanted. The debate and discussion thing about democratic centrism was, did not operate then. Now it does, which makes it even more dangerous because they, the whole cadres owe allegiance to the Maoists because they think that their ideas are being reflected here. 
and there is a common action because whatever they decide on they implement so what i find that actually I admire them to an extent which is that now they are very organized very they are going step by step over the whole process and all they don't the leaders know very well that in their lifetime they may not be able to realize their goals and they have said it like if you see comrade ganapati's interview he is one of the most like in most of these uh, media journals and publications you'll find his interviews and all what he has said is that that we are willing to sustain the momentum of violence and raise future revolutionaries and for the tribals who were who didn't feel that self uh, this that self respect that they never got got from the government here they feel that see we are part of this this is goes back to all the terrorist and guerrilla movements that you know uh, this whole thing about capturing the elusive thing called personal glory and being part of this grand movement and they do it very well like if you sit in one of their meetings you will actually you will actually feel like that okay i want to join this movement and all that is so good and all like what they are saying makes sense to me what the government says doesn't make sense and the government is also if you see like if you hear the home minister when he talks it's like it's very cold very indifferent like our home minister like india is known as a very dramatic society but the home minister tends to go the total opposite means that he he's very phlegmatic he's very quiet he doesn't tell give out much but that gives out the wrong signal to the people they think he doesn't care and he wants to attack us with force and he's cold blooded about it yeah if you see about the 150 respondents 11 out of 150 said they wanted autonomy but if you go and see that most of them wanted to join the maoists because they had no choice or they wanted to they had a wholehearted support they gave to the maoists what i want to stress on that in different states the picture is different that's what makes india such a fascinating place that you can't just go and tell that this is what's happened come out with some categorical statements and all what i'm telling is that through fear and favor they are getting people into their ranks so there are people in certain states who will support the maoists because they feel that the maoists care for them and these people are mostly in the red corridor states that is chatisgarh jharkhand uh, in uh, andhra pradesh in west bengal however you find the picture is divided and this surprise is because west bengal was the area from which the maoists or the naxalite movement started which is called the naxalbadi in 1967 it was a peasant rebellion but in west bengal there's a area called lalgarh because of the government's own actions they completely alienated alienated the people in certain parts like singur and nandigram where the land acquisition policy failed badly 
there also the people went against the government but it's not at all over west bengal people support the maoists they don't they are horrified by certain maoist acts but to talk about total pan india presence a class based uh, movement that is actually taking place it is taking place because if you see the red corridor states 20% of population they have full control over them if a government district magistrate or a uh, subdivisional officer which is just a district level officer tries to come there they will not be able to enter those areas because villages don't allow them to enter those areas that must support these people have in these areas is because we have allowed the wound to fester over years of apathy and neglect in these particular states has brought out the situation so that's the first the second thing is about china now pointing fingers at china and china bashing is pretty common in india <laughs> and i would like to stay clear but the thing is that you know sometimes it is something as a called and you know it's an open secret the good thing about china is that they are spreading their influence all over the world but they are able to do so because of their moral ambivalence like they are not coming with certain ideology they are trying to impose and all so if you talk about the maoist and chinese links they have openly said that we support the they see that as the model what's happened in china but they nicely forget that china is now trying to evolve its own form of capitalism which harmonizes with their own with the communist principles trying to find a own hybrid version that they don't see what they see is they go back they actually they're frozen during the previous before cultural revolution forgetting the excesses during the cultural revolution so the time frame is frozen during that time and it keeps on coming if you read the documents to this thing chinese presence in south asia is there because they are doing this pearl uh, string of pearl strategy they have developed bases in myanmar in bangladesh and recently in sri lanka and they are targeting actually they have set up a kind of they are do trying to uh, get work out a free trade agreement and a base in maldives so this what india calls is encirclement of india and all and they have a supporter in pakistan but i think that that's all. so they they are building their influence and all and good thing for them okay. um Okay, coming to your uh, first question, that why did they change in strategy? Like there, you from 2000 at the turn of the century, different uh, organizations they were meeting during the party unit uh, unity conferences. There was this conferences taking place all over uh, India. Of as I told, there are 40 major groups. Three are three are very extremely powerful. who started merging and then again dividing and again coming back together and all demerging so these unity conferences that took place they met to discuss strategies that what will work in these areas guerrilla tactics worked well for them like guerrera's prescription like when there are enemies retreating you attack when they are attacking retreat and when they are when they are resting go on an offensive or whatever they had actually perfected that technique you know but now that actually that segues with your second point that you raised is that now that time they didn't have the support base that they had they had to mingle with the population go hit run go hit run here they have a whole territory under their control they are calling the shots here government is going at a position of disadvantage they are going there so it's like you go with a huge force destroy them come back and it's a show of strength there is the whole impact also the people will see the tribal the villages i'll give you an example uh, let me like the recent attack which i was telling you i keep on raising dante word because that actually increased the shock value like we are so inured to violence 
when something like this big happens, that jerks us awake and all. So what happened? There was no reason for 350 Maoists to come and attack, corner them. What they did is they set a false lead to these uh, 75, to these 81 men, actually. And when they were coming back to their base camp, all of them converged from the hilltop. So this, this area was hemmed in by mountains on all sides. And they started shooting at them. And when these people tried to take cover in the forest areas, it was, the entire area was mined. And they all died there. And why did that happen? This wouldn't have happened if they didn't have support of villagers. Because you can't go and lay a mine in all these areas without the villagers knowing about it. So here, it's totally about this. Everything works in psychological, which is the most one of the most important parts of warfare. And the tactical warfare. It works. It helps, it helps them and all to overwhelm with by force because that is their area. And they can do it. Because it has sustained, it has worked. It's like I'm not, I'm not making a supposition here. For instance, actually, they have worked in places. It's like a true. It's like self-evident. Like I am actually telling this means it's like a superfluous statement that I'm making. Actually, telling that they have made, you know, they have had support in areas where the government has not worked. They have not worked in areas where uh, there is government support and all. That's a self-evident fact. Greyhounds worked in areas where the government did not, was very weak, where the Maoists had an entrenched presence there. What the Greyhounds did was that they did not, and actually those who will really read the Khalistani movement in Punjab, means not what about KPS Gill did, or I don't know who, who has read, who knows about the Khalistani, but it's about Punjabi extremism and terrorism there. You can draw parallels with this experience. And I always think that when up the, you can draw parallels and see that there are some kind of generalities, these are some lessons. This is not something that is specific, but that can that has some sort of a universal applicability to an extent. Greyhounds worked because it was about not alienating the locals by having these vigilante groups or proxies, but these small units of men who would, after getting the leads from their paid informers, they would go and target those areas and then come back. So the villagers also were not aware that, you know, the Maoists were actually killed. They were very secretive and they went and did it and came back. Very methodical about totally killing the Maoists. It was not about uh, getting a regular fight, uh, army together with the regular fights, a regular army, and then them, you know, working for them. This didn't work in Chhattisgarh. Chath this didn't work in um, Madhya Pradesh before the division of Madhya Pradesh into Chhattisgarh. But it worked in Andhra Pradesh because they followed this model. There was tremendous in, uh, emphasis on local intelligence. It was not about what the central uh, intelligence units or the state intelligence would tell them, but what people themselves would tell them. So they would not go around and all, you know, like uh, most of the police officials, they are very rough with the locals in India. They would go there and beat them up or find where is the Maoist or you are a Maoist. They will go and brand them and all. And this alienated the people. But Greyhounds, they had this whole network, a very good network and all. Then talking about development, development is interesting because what is the alternative? You are giving this picture to the people. They were contrasting it. Why? They provided the security for the development agencies to come and work. Like falling back into the old truism, the thing that, you know, what, how will you develop an area you don't control? The oft-repeated thing. So they went and did the same thing. They provided the security so development agencies could come to these areas and develop.
that's actually a very interesting question i have always been fascinated by this like where does the civil society organizations or the ngos stand and the, like sometimes we think that their civil society organizations and automatically we think that they are going to be the neutral party and that is not the case like many of them have become politicized elements and all many of them are projecting their version they're pushing their agendas and all but there are hundreds and i've seen the way they work and all they are not the ones who actually like those you find in the media and all these uh, critical establishment circles and all who are showing their faces there and all they are the they are the media hungry people who go there and you know what kind of thing well is the faceless people there the hundreds of these people who work with the tribals who are from the villages themselves means they like what self help groups these uh, who start these micro enterprises within the villages to give them a kind of a livelihood option an alternative or who go to delhi who go all the way to delhi or to the respective state secretariat and voice the grievances of the tribals so there are many and one of them which i told you whose leader was killed was chatisgarh mukti morcha and these are the people because of their efforts that the government could actually pass one of the most contentious bills that is the forest rights act that is how that how much of like the problem with india is that what we did is we adopted the european socialist model of preserving the cultural way of life of tribals but to an extent where we didn't care about what is happening to them we thought that they exist within the territory of india and let's leave them to their own plight but we didn't care about development so what we did is we allowed while the rest of india was progressing these people remain at a particular at, at a very low level of development so most of the states that uh, maoists have targeted rank the lowest in human development index the civil society organizations like the people that that i have actually spoken to and worked with us they emphasize on human security and both aspects let us safety and well being how we cater to these demands so when it comes to safety they will work with government because government can ensure physical security when it comes to well being they'll try to provide and help in the formation of social infrastructure like schools like health centers these are the basic needs of the tribal water sewerage yeah but these organizations cannot operate in areas where there are maoists they can operate in areas adjacent to the maoists and show a kind of a dev, kind of an alternative because if you you cannot as i said said in the areas where maoists are functioning this the red corridor zone there the maoists will build the schools in latehar and in one area in uh, ghadricholi in maharashtra which is very near bombay these maoists de- destroyed 700 schools they started extorting money from anyone the local agencies who would come to build these water pumps extremely important thing for a water based agricultural system like india they would start start taking money from them here the local the civil society organizations just near ghadricholi they started operating and providing these amenities and all yeah especially economic zones when you come to land acquisition policy like i was telling you previously is that it all goes down to public good the clock house of what is the land in maoist lexicon there is nothing called private it's all community for them like we own the property as a village we own it as a block so when it comes to land acquisition policy and all of the government and all it's very important for the government from the government's perspective to map the lands to map these areas and to decide that these are the so whom do if we want to buy that property i'm not talking about the maoists they don't come into the picture now 
now when you're talking about them they come in and say that these are the land if we want to buy it to develop these special economic zones whom do we target do we go and sell these lands like does the government sell these lands to the businesses or do the people who own the land sell it now in west bengal i think you're alluding to the west bengal case so in west bengal what happened is that land mapping is non existent and they are following an archaic uh, british laws of land rights so here the landlords you don't know can come into the this 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 is a plot of land i own and no one can say anything because those land records are gathering dust in the shelves in calcutta secretariat that is the writers building so here what happens is very easy for the government to take land from the people and pose themselves as the owner and sell it to big big business okay for what maoists how the maoists would interpret this ownership they would say that government has no business selling the land of the people because this is the land we we own together all the people own this is a community land yes these plots will be given to these these people because they are supposed to like one farmer will deal with this another farmer will deal with this another farmer will deal with this but this is decided by the village local village panchayats it is divided decided by the local self governments it's not decided by the central or state government so and it falls into the ideology of the maoists that we will discuss it who owns what and then we will follow it easily
yeah like that is the that is a starting point of my whole thing that is the different versions the different stories that's why i gave you four stories i didn't tell you the one that this all the things the right version and all first and foremost i have from beginning i think i have also like in my discussions with professor muller also that's the first thing i have decided i've always said that the line of distinction when it comes to terrorism between state terrorism and non state terrorism is tendentious i have never accepted that uh, state sponsored terrorism is or state supported terrorism or state state terrorism can be differentiated in any way it's all the same whoever uses force to get what now when i'm let me get it very clear because i think what happens in these discussions we tend to portray one side story and we don't see the other kind of things first and foremost this is a very common thing which everyone says but i think it's so important that we need to underline this fact violence can never be condoned in any way this is first thing and this you know i know everyone knows this yet we tend to like i'm coming to your point for ghadrecholi and all is that so yes the local police have been corrupt they have exploited i have i also i also told that they raped also this for tribal women otherwise why should women go and join these ranks of the maoists and all but maoists are also they are not like uh, holier than, you know like it's very easy for the maoists also to get their support base from these people and all tendu leaves thing is commonly cited that we pay higher wages for tendu leaves or we pay higher wages for particular things think about the development initiatives development initiatives is not about bringing and getting mncs in india the discourse of development should be clear what development are we talking about what kind of development are we talking about what are the yardsticks are we talking about bringing mncs and then fast tracking the whole process or are we talking about ground level development giving money for micro and small and medium enterprises building it right from the ground and all see the development history of india it is the governments that have brought the land acquisition uh, policy actually started with the export processing zone policy long time back in gujarat but it didn't work because at that point of time we were more socialistic inclined and all and that time also we had not fine tuned the whole process land acquisition policy in china can work because it is because there you can enforce your will in india you can't because there's a strong history of peasant rebellion and movements here the development what i'm talking about that you bringing is about the social indicators of development it is about bringing in these basic amenities and creating an infrastructure a communication and this thing bringing in 3g network bringing in ict like recently it was about those areas in andhra pradesh it was about if hyderabad can be a technical technological capital why don't we develop information and communication technologies to empower women educate them and employ them so these are the different types of development that we are talking about coming so let me let us get clear about it maoists don't for the maoists it is that we have our own vision of development we will enforce this kind of vision in our areas people don't have have not been given the choice you know like if we can what is the most important thing about the kind of a countries what are the choices are we giving the people are we giving them a kind of a force fed vision of development or are we giving them a whole host of choices and telling you decide this is a consumer choice society of development also so that is one option which we are not giving now talking about binayak sen why was binayak sen Vinayak Sen was persecuted because of the government no one denies the fact and why was this thing highlighted was because of the media we have an extremely active kind of an independent media and they highlighted the fact and because of the constant effort the government couldn't go and enforce this couldn't go go he had to he was branded maoist but who who accepts this does everyone accept that he's a maoist no one does go to any educational circuits go to seminars go to these things they don't and that is why they are that is why you find these bloggers and all campaigning for his release ultimately they had to the government had to accede to the demand of the civil society this is the power of a civil society in a democracy like india what the maoists are telling they are saying we you go and read their text what they say that let us destroy the system and on this we will build a new kind of democracy but arundhati roy and her ilk 
with one sweeping stroke and a general statement, they discount the fact that so many of us who have faith in a particular system that is not imposed by a particular government, but a system we the people are ourselves negotiating, remodeling, and creating it. It's, a, it's, a, it's just 63 years old. It's still developing. But it's developing because of the efforts that we are bringing in. Coming to whether the, about terrorism and all, state-sponsored terrorism, where we can just pick up anybody and all and brand them something. This has happened, but there's also a kind of a repercussion to, for the government. They can't do that. For instance, POTA, prevention of terrorism activities. That was that one government, but the BJP government had started. It is something like the U.S. Homeland Security Act. That was scrapped. Why? Because of this constant media and civil society pressure. This porta that was uh, that was used to uh, arrest so many Maoists and all. Now this porta was scrapped. Porta courts, which are still existing, these are being slowly and slowly being disbanded, and they are going into a. They are now they are bringing it into the usual law and order. Uh, this courts that is the civil, the criminal jurisdiction courts. But Maoist is not a usual law and order problem. You should be mindful of this fact. What is it we have to distinguish between civil society, the Maoists, and the government, not give completely tell that these people are good or these people are bad. Know that both of them have their own black and white sides. Which side we believe, which side we are willing to accept, What kind? to what level of violence are we willing to accept, and what level of violence we are not willing to accept? That's the major question. It's just like you give an inch, they'll take a mile. So if you just let it be, then it'll keep on growing and growing and mutating into a thing you cannot never control. This is an extremely important in terms of economic development areas. As I told, there are alternative models of development which so many people are deciding on. So yeah, because the areas like you see Andhra Pradesh is an area where the gov where the government focused on developing Hyderabad, Sikandrabad, and they completely ignored the rest of the territory. They completely, in Jharkhand, this, uh, the local, it's, it is, Jharkhand is actually made by the tribals themselves. It is seen as a tri triumph of the tribal's aspiration because that was, it was a state, Jharkhand was a part of Bihar. It was divided to be ruled by the indigenous people. But when they got power, like Lord Acton's usual saying that absolute power corrupts absolutely, what you see here is that they were so busy in playing. In Jharkhand, there were, I don't know, I think seven governments in 10 years or something like that. Like, it's just like, I think it's one of the biggest, it can be, it's, one of the, it's a big tragedy that through the tribal movement, a division of state took place so that there is better governance, there is better development. And the people who came to power completely betrayed their constituents. And all. So the states, if we completely leave it, it will be told, it'll go, it'll be out of control. And all. The whole point. And control, yeah, and that's out of control. <laughs> like Maoist control has, yeah. Just to give a kind of a contrast, in case it works, Maoists in uh, 1980s, during what we call NTR regime in uh, Andhra Pradesh, briefly they were allowed to control certain areas. And they were because NTR, the chief minister, his acronym was NTR. His full name is quite complicated if Mahapatra is complicated. So NTR, he allowed, told that this Maoists are helping me in my political campaign, so you do whatever you want in these areas. So when they were given that, that kind of independence to work, they completely abused their power. They set up kangaroo courts. And there was this, like, just like what happened in Taliban. Like, you know, you gain power, you impose your dictate, dictates on the people and all. That's the problem. It's absolutist kind of any discourse, you know, where you have a preset vision. Like, 
you talk about debate and discussion, but ultimately it boils down to what the power elite wants. It's always interesting. In Indian democracy, the problem is that the feature should be debate and discussion should precede dissent. But here, dissent precedes debate and discussion. So that has been the problem in these particular areas. So if we completely let go of these places, then we are basically committing a hierarchy of suicide. Thanks very much.